Well, it's good to see everybody here today. I'm going to speak about the Ten Perfections in Theravada Buddhism. But there's also perfections in Mahayana Buddhism, and they're a little different. So what I'm going to start with are the first three perfections in Theravada Buddhism and extend it into the next couple months. So a series of talks on the perfections. And the ten perfections are, right off the bat, giving, morality, renunciation, discerning wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, determination, loving-kindness, equanimity. And I'm going to call these talks, Practice Makes Perfect. So let's think about that to begin with. We have a violin player sitting right over there. We have a ukulele player sitting right over here. And we have Eric Clapton sitting someplace other than here. And he has sort of reached his level of perfection through practice and performance. And so the idea for me is when I practice is I'm practicing eventually to perform, hoping the performance turns into perfection and is appreciated by all, but of course that never happens because there's always one who doesn't like it. And they'll put it on YouTube. I don't like it. And a thousand people do. So what is this perfection? I think the perfection is just simply doing it without thinking about it making it a natural part of your response to the world. And the first perfection is giving, dana, generosity. It's also the first perfection in the Mahayana, six perfections, which I think is interesting because it's important to practice giving to make it a perfection. Now, people ask me how I started my practice of generosity and giving. And to be honest with you, it was really difficult because I didn't want to give money to people who might misspend it. And then I would feel bad because they became drunk an hour after I gave them money. So I decided to have a way to give without knowing the results of my giving. So what I did is I left change in vending machines. And then people would find the quarter and they would think today is their day because here they were a quarter richer than they were a minute before. And I gave it to them without knowing who or what was going to happen to it. So I gained even more merit because it was selfless giving. It wasn't connected to self in any way. So that went on for quite a while, and I became very happy at giving a quarter away or 10 cents away. And then, and then at IBMC here, Doug, the residential manager, at one time was the animal caretaker. And Doug went to Reverend Croon and said, you know, I'm getting tired of feeding these animals every day. Maybe somebody else could do it for a while, because I've been doing it for years. And so Reverend Kruna came to me and said, well, Kusala, would you like to feed the animals for a while? 
And that was about 20 years ago. <laughs> and I said, sure, I'll feed the animals. And so at first there was plenty of food. She'd go out and she'd buy food and I'd get a case of this and a case of that and a bag of this. And, and every morning I would get up and I would feed them once a day and they seemed to be really happy getting fed once a day. And then, and then it's sort of the, 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 fat, the, the food flow sort of stopped. And I wasn't getting the food from Urban Kroonis, so I said, well, I'll just go out and buy some food. Cat food can't be that expensive. And we had dogs at that time. We also had birds at that time and fish at that time. So I go out and I get the bird food and the cat food and the dog food and the fish food. And, and you know, and so I was, I was, I don't know if I was giving freely, but I was giving because there was a purpose and a demand for me to give. That hunger was the inspiration for me to give and buy food. And then it continued to go and then all the dogs died and the, and the birds were given away. And so we ended up with cats and fish. And then I said to myself, well, I'll just buy the food, you know, because now there's less animals to feed and I can afford this. And, you know, on my monk's salary, it, wasn't, it was okay. So for the last many years, I've been feeding them twice a day rather than once a day. And, and then on my Facebook page, I posted that I was feeding the cats. And somebody said, well, how can I help? And then all of a sudden... Amazon.com delivered to the front door a little box of cat food. And then there was another box of cat food. And then there were some treats. And then there was some dry food. And then there was some wet food. So my expenditures went down from $150 a month to maybe $50 a month because other people were helping me give to the cats. And I thought to myself, what a wonderful way to get people to trick people into giving. You know, and getting good karma for it and not even knowing they are. And, and so all the karma that I get for feeding the cats, I redistribute to people who need it, which is like everybody. Now, the root of giving, though, I thought, well, why? What's, what's so important about giving? Because it's like the first perfection and it's like really important. And, and what, what's the deal? What does it do besides give you merit? Well, it does something very important. What it does is it transforms your greed into generosity. And the Buddha said we have three poisons, greed, hatred, and delusion. So by giving, by practicing generosity, one is reducing their own personal greed and eventually dissolving it and transforming it into generosity. Okay. That makes sense to me, being a pragmatic person that I am. And then I thought, well, what's the best gift you can give? Now, to a cat, probably cat food is the best gift you can give. <laughs> but in the larger scale of things, the best gift you can give is the Dharma. That that is like the medicine for all who are suffering. So giving the Dharma is the best gift and you get the most merit for it. The hard part in giving the Dharma is finding people who want to listen. <laughs> so in order to give, you have to have somebody to receive. There needs to be a giver, there needs to be a receiver. When those two things are in place, magic happens. So all I have to do is walk in the backyard and my receivers are there. 
and I give them food twice a day. Now, the second perfection is morality, or sila. And this is a simple one to understand, but the ramifications are amazing when you start to dissect what it means to be a good person. Now, Buddhism may not have God, but Buddhism does have good. We just added an O. And what we find is that in order to be good, we need to reduce suffering. That's, that's the reference point. I am doing good if I am suffering less and the people around me are suffering less. We do not have a divine lawgiver to define for us what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong, what is skillful and what is unskillful. What we have, rather, is karma. Karma defines for us, ultimately, what is skillful and unskillful. But the problem with karma is sometimes you have to wait a few lifetimes to figure out if you did something good. And that's a really long time to make a lot of mistakes until you find out. So what we can do is we can sort of look at our intention. What is our intention when we say, think, or do something? Do we intend to reduce suffering? Do we intend to be right? Do we intend to be kind? What are the things behind our actions, our speech, and our thought? And so the Buddha said, the three poisons allow us to know if it's going to be unskillful, greed, hatred, and delusion. And the antidote to the three poisons would be generosity, compassion, and wisdom. So what is your intention? Where does it come from? What is the root? If it's skillful, chances are the, you will manifest in the world in a way that reduces suffering, not increases suffering. So what does a Buddhist do? A Buddhist does not look at the Ten Commandments as being a directive. A Buddhist accepts the training precepts, training precepts, that allow them to be skillful and have a reference point in doing so. So the training precepts are, as everybody knows, not to kill, not to take what is not given, not to indulge in sexual misconduct, not to speak unskillfully, not to consume intoxicants. Now, I don't know if you've been following the news lately, but the marijuana businesses are switching over now. And before, they didn't have to have any chemical tests to test the purity of the marijuana. So they were having a garage sale on all the marijuana that wasn't tested. And now all the marijuana you get to buy now is going to be tested so you don't have to die because you smoke marijuana. But I, I just love the newscasts when they talk about it. And so this morning on Channel 4, as I was watching the news, the news commentator says, yes, today is the day to get your last budget bud. <laughs> I'm going, budget bud? Now, you know the person that wrote that smokes marijuana. I'm going, wow, and here we are trying to hold that fifth precept of not consuming intoxicants, and they have budget butt out there. What are you going to do? So how do you prevent yourself from indulging in inexpensive marijuana? You understand the fifth precept. 
you say to yourself, if I take budget bud, I'm going to lose any wisdom I've acquired. I'm going to be really stupid, do a lot of dumb things, cause a lot of suffering. And that's not being skillful. So each one of those precepts that define for us skillful and unskillful, what a Buddhist does and doesn't do, allows us to reflect on what it means to hold the precept. And when you can't hold the precept any longer, when that beer and that burrito and those chips and those salsa are calling you to consume them, that means the precept has defeated you. The precept was stronger than you were. So after you finish your lunch of burritos and beers and salsa and chips, then you reestablish that precept as a practice that you will follow until you break it the next time. And what will happen after you broke it numerable times, you will say to yourself, maybe I don't need to break it anymore. Maybe I'm at the point in my practice that I cannot have a beer and a burrito, I can have a Coke and a burrito. And we all know Cokes are so much better than beers. <laughs> Chemicals, sugar. <laughs> so our wisdom, our insight into the nature of the five precepts allows us to be more skillful and cause less suffering. The third one I'd like to talk about today is the perfection of renunciation. And this is often misunderstood. And, and I'm going to go into my idea of renunciation when I started my Buddhist practice, and that was to just give stuff up. I said to myself, well, I'm just going to give stuff up. And, and that way, I will be practicing renunciation. And, and so, before I moved into the meditation center here in 1993, I had a keyboard, and I had a banjo, and I had a couple guitars, and I thought to myself, Craigslist, I'm going to sell all that stuff because I'm never going to play them anymore. I'm going to be a Buddhist, and that way I can practice renunciation. So I, got, I did sell them, and I got a little money for them, and then it wasn't more than two or three years later when they all reappeared in my room. Because what I didn't do was get rid of the desire for them. I just got rid of them. And so now I have them all back again, miraculously. And I get to play my ukulele, and I get to play my banjo, and I get to play my guitar, and ain't life grand. And I thought to myself, how could that possibly happen? What didn't I understand about renunciation that led me to reestablish my desire and craving and attachment to all these musical instruments. Well, as it turns out, in reading about this third perfection, it's about attachment. And oftentimes when I'm speaking of the five, of the four jhanas and the five aspects of the four jhanas, I'll talk about applied thought and sustained thought, happiness, bliss, and equanimity. And when I get to happiness and bliss, or happiness and physical pleasure, at first I thought it was give up the pleasure, give up the happiness. But then I realized I'm hardwired to be happy and to experience pleasure. In the same way, I'm hardwired to experience unhappiness and experience pain. So it wasn't about giving up pain and pleasure 
and happiness and unhappiness. It was all about giving up the attachment to pleasure, the attachment to happiness. Because we don't want it to change. We want to hold on to it as long as we can. And we're always disappointed when our happiness and our pleasure decides to go on vacation because everything's impermanent. Everything changes all the time. Thankfully, that's the case with unhappiness and pain as well. So in renunciation, what we're talking about is giving up our desire, giving up our attachment, giving up our grasping. And, and that will reduce and ultimately end our suffering. But now the question comes, how the heck do you give up attachment, give up desire? And there are perhaps many ways to do it, but two that stand out in my mind are, number one, discipline. Discipline is a good way to give up attachment, but it requires personal effort. So, for 14 years, I smoked cigarettes. And in 1978, at 55 cents a pack, I quit. Well, it was one day, and I woke up, and I just didn't want a cigarette anymore because I realized I'd be dead soon. I was almost 30. And I figured the quality of life was important, more important than the longevity of life. So even if I didn't live longer, I would live better because I didn't smoke cigarettes. And then, after about a week, I wanted to smoke a lot of cigarettes again. So I said, well, how do I give this up? And then the deal was, well, you just don't smoke. That you ride the wave of desire like a surfer. And it goes up and it goes down, it goes up and it goes down. And you want to reach and you don't. And then you start to see that in time, all those waves get a little smaller, and then all those waves turn into wavelets, and then all the wavelets turn into a calm forest pond with no desire arising to either smoke or not smoke, attachment or aversion. And that took about a year. And I joined a gym, and I worked out, and I felt physically stronger, and I felt mentally stronger because my discipline had allowed me to not pick up another cigarette. So since 1978, I haven't picked up a cigarette and I haven't bought a pack of cigarettes for myself or anybody else. If people ask me to buy cigarettes for them, I don't smoke. I don't buy them. I don't want to see them because my mind is a quiet forest pond and I want to keep it that way. So discipline is one way to deal with attachment and aversion as well. But there's another way, a more profound way, that didn't work for me, but it may work for you. And that's wisdom. And the wisdom necessary to understand why not to smoke. Why not to have that beer, that beer with the burrito. The wisdom necessary to prevent you from doing something unskillful and creating more suffering rather than less. So it takes a, a lot of reflection, a lot of thought, and a lot of understanding at the deepest level why we're motivated to do something. But the wisdom aspect can definitely change your life and create less attachment, less aversion, 
rather than more. So discipline and wisdom are the two ways we can prevent ourselves from getting caught in attachment, whatever that attachment might be, oftentimes based in greed, hatred, and delusion, and not get caught in aversion, not pushing it away, but simply waiting for it to arise, exist, and ultimately pass away. So there's nothing in Buddhism that says don't enjoy your life. There's nothing in Buddhism that says it's wrong to be happy. There's nothing in Buddhism that says it's wrong to feel pleasure. What Buddhism does say is the pleasure and the happiness will leave. Don't get attached. Let it go. Wish it well on its journey. You don't have to go along with it because there's, in a matter of time, more happiness will arise in your life. More pleasure will arise in your life. And then that goes away too. And it continues to go until you get to a certain age, maybe 80, when you don't care much about happiness. You don't care much about pleasure. You're just happy to be alive and not hurt so much. And that might be good. Those simple things become really important. So the first three perfections. Number one, generosity. How can you practice generosity today? Number two, morality. How can you practice the five precepts in your everyday life and see how well they work at reducing your suffering and the suffering of others? And number three, how can you practice not being attached to things in your life, in your body, in your mind? How can you practice letting go, either through discipline or through wisdom? And see how that feels and see what that means. Those are the first three perfections of the ten. The next talk I give, I'll talk about the other three, but I'm going to be posting these on the internet, so if you miss one of my talks, you can just download and, and hear what the perfections are according to me.